Today on the Doc on the Run podcast, we're talking with sports nutritionist and triathlete Heidi Buttery about good fat, bad fat, and fat fueling as a way to fuel better and avoid running injuries. Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Segler, and thanks for tuning in to the Doc on the Run podcast, where we help you understand how to keep training and running even if you've been injured. Heidi, welcome to the show. To get started, maybe you could just give us a little background about you and your athletic history, what you do now as a nutrition coach, and how that stuff's all tied together, just to give our listeners a little idea of your approach, where you came from, and and what you're up to now. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on your show, Chris. I've listened to your other podcasts, and you have such a plethora of guests, so it's an honor to uh, be one of them. I am a triathlete, as you said, and also a nutritionist. So in terms of athletic, and I think, you know, I can kind of work in my own nutrition story and studies into it. I got into triathlons about five years ago. Before that, I casually ran, practiced yoga, rock climbed, and, you know, just tried to stay pretty active. But in 2011, I decided to kind of put everything together, learn how to swim, (laughs) which is kind of funny because that was sort of what was holding me back, I think, from even attempting triathlon. I jumped in the pool with Menlo Masters after taking a couple swim lessons. So right out of Menlo Park and eventually found my way to a team, Team Sheeper. And after swimming with them uh, for a couple months, decided to take on my first half Ironman the following summer. Oh, wow. So Vineman is a pretty popular race for the locals around here, which is now Santa Rosa. So when I signed up for that race, you know, I kind of got more interested in nutrition. The typical sports nutrition protocol was to fuel for every 45 minutes, kind of keep that going. And I'll, I'll circle back to timing and of different foods along the way. But I had a great race. And then decided to sign up for my first Ironman. <laughs> <laughs> so if I understand correctly, I think your first race was an Ironman, right? It was, yeah. I just, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I I always wanted to do an Ironman, but I um, I also figured it was better because I wouldn't have any ideas of how hard it would be because um, I'd never <laughs> done a triathlon. So, you know, I think that was a good approach for me, but... In retrospect, I think it was great, Um, but, you know, if you want to get fast, that's not necessarily the best way to do it because you kind of get used to going really slow, but I think it it was good for me just because I talked to so many people who had done, you know, a half Ironman or Olympic or whatever, and they just said, well, I can't imagine going four times that long or twice that long, Um, Mm -hmm. so I didn't have any of those concerns, so for me, it worked out okay. That's probably not the best approach. And zero to 60. As you can relate, when you're training, you're fueling a lot more Mm -hmm. and you're eating more and you're hungrier. And I think, you know, just to point out a common misconception, and I was talking to actually Gina Kerr, who I'm kind of working with in the in the triathlon nutrition space, between the two of us, we were talking about how athletes will get into sports and kind of go very calorie in, calorie out and justify maybe eating even more after eating a lot of treats, which can lead to additional inflammation in the body. In my own head and my own thoughts, I was thinking about this and sort of how to to fuel um, more so my general diet. I actually went and bought a Vitamix because I heard smoothies were really good Mm -hmm. for you. And then, you know, it kind of propelled from there. I started making my own energy bars more than, you know, buying store versions. One of the things I noticed by changing my diet, so including smoothies, which were mostly leafy green based, I had less inflammation. So I don't know if any 
any of your listeners or you yourself have taken an ice bath before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do it yeah. after every single Ironman. I buy 10 pounds of ice <laughs> on the way back to the you know the hotel or whatever. I try to do that after every race. So everywhere yeah. it's available, I do it. And I also do it after all of my really long bike rides and really long runs. It really helps. It's not fun. But right. the truth is, I don't think mile repeats are fun. So I just think right, that's part right. of training. Some people say, well, I don't like the way that tastes. Like, so what? Do you like the way it tastes when you throw up when you're doing a race? I don't, but well, I still do right it. On, right on, right on, right um, on. So Jack Laleen, one of the pioneers of fitness he actually oh, yeah. said if it if it tastes good spit it out yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we don't have to quite get there but like you said we'll talk a little bit to nutrition alternatives to gels for people and, and some of them you know initially you might say oh that kind of tastes different or maybe less sugar but like you said it will lead to better performance it's kind of hard to imagine really how can something that is salted caramel flavor or mm-hmm. cake batter flavor, how can that mm-hmm. necessarily be good for you? Uh, right, right. It's interesting that that's what they use to market those gels. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So, you know, I, I will speak to UCAN, which is one of the few products I recommend. I mean, there there's sort of a spectrum, but I could say and, and speak to it. What I recommend to people too is very authentic to myself. And I mm-hmm. don't really stand behind products that you know, I don't believe in. So right. I can kind of speak to that a little bit more. But going back to the ice bath. So that was something that I probably did more frequently. Um, and I don't have to do as much. Now, as you said before, Ironman races, I mean, <laughs> definitely key, you know, I've been at races where they have the ice right there. So you mm-hmm. can jump in so making those transformative phases, I was able to get leaner, which was great. So we'll talk about body composition related to diet. And I had a great race at Coeur d'Alene. There's a lot that goes into a race, as you know. So nutrition is is part of it. And I think it's key, but there's also many factors that can affect it. So, you know, I wouldn't think good nutrition is the only way to have successful race, but I would say, especially for Coeur d'Alene, it just, everything kind of fell into place for me. There, you know, there are lots of stories about that. So we can always you know, take whatever evidence we want and use it to justify our behavior. And um, there are stories of, I don't remember who it was, but there was a guy that sat on the curb and ate um, this roast beef sandwich and and then won (laughs) the um, Boston Marathon. Uh, And, you know, uh, Max Longry would always eat a huge cheeseburger at the finish line of the Ironman races when he would win. Uh, (laughs) There's always some way to say, okay, well, that's okay, because I obviously, I just won the Ironman and I can eat a cheeseburger if I want. I mean, but Max is kind of a funny guy, right? He's he's very interesting. He's obviously very Mm -hmm. fit, always has been. Mm -hmm. He's an incredible runner and he can get away with that. Uh, But that's not necessarily how you want to fuel. You know, the thing that obviously one of the main focuses of the Doc on the Run podcast is help runners avoid injury and these choices matter and we know that you know life stressors all can add up to compound the risk of injury work stress changing jobs poor diet uh, all those things can make life more stressful and predispose uh, an athlete to injury and personally i really believe that one of the greatest contributors to running injuries is improper fueling because mm-hmm. if the muscles aren't fueled properly they can't be at their greatest strength and weaker muscles tendons and bones are all more prone to stress related over training injuries mm-hmm. you know so that's where i think all of this comes in and you know and as you said you know there's a better system of not just eating the standard commercially available gels but we've heard so much about you need to get leaner 
And right. is that really true or not? Fat's bad. So, but there's good fat and bad fat, right? So why don't you talk a little right. bit about the differences between good fat and bad fat as it pertains to fueling? Right. Great point on some athletes could actually maybe be fueling with um, any sort of bars. Um, and, and just to kind of point out uh, some of the implications of my work in the, the fat-fueled athlete area is there is a nutritionist, Dr. Kate Shanahan. She just wrote a book called Deep Nutrition. And she actually works with the LA Lakers, who actually brought her in to improve diet, where a lot of the athletes were fueling with Doritos, and, and, and they could get away with a lot of it, but they wanted enhanced performance. So I believe it's the Lakers. I'm sort of thinking now, okay, it's a little bit early. Maybe it's not the Lakers, but it's a professional NBA team <laughs> who does really well. So she's taken the fat-fueled approach, applied it to them, and has had a lot of success. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, on the professional level, there is room for the performance. You know, in terms of fat, there's, there's so much that can be said. I just kind of want to go back to about 40 years ago to give you a little bit of history on why we have these negative thoughts around all types of fat. So as you said, there's good fat and bad fat. So there was a seven country study, which I'm not sure if you've heard of this study. It was done just about 40 years ago, but it looked at incidents of saturated fat intake. So, you know, saturated fat are coconut oils, which now we know are good for us, our grass-fed butters, egg yolks, whole milk. And it compared that with heart disease across seven countries. And it did show a correlation of incidents between the two. Now, it's important to, to note here that it's correlation, not causation. However, when the researcher was taking this into account, they ignored about 22 other countries that had plenty of saturated fat, no connection to heart disease. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, the study was flawed because it didn't take into account other factors. You know, we talked about other factors kind of going into race loss, race performance, weight loss, but it didn't take into account smoking rates, sugar right. consumption, exercise right. levels. And unfortunately, this became the base of, you know, the government changing to a low fat diet. And it kind of propelled us uh, to where we are today. There's a lot that goes into the history of it, or I should say, maybe even a little bit, but we base a lot of our, our common knowledge on it. Right. I'd like to just talk a little bit about the, the function of fat, what it does for our body, and then talk about the myths. Mm -hmm. I think some of those good fats and bad fats will kind of come out of that. Okay, great. First, I think many people know that there are seven calories in a gram of fat, four calories in a gram of sugar. Uh, so this makes fat a much more concentrated source of energy. When we talk about fueling, and I will relate this to athletics as well as, as regular diet, this means if you can get your body to burn fats as a source of energy, you need less fueling. There would be no need to, you know, even if you cycle an hour, maybe you're not going to need any sort of fueling. Mm -hmm. So maybe it kind of pushes that out. You know, I think that's, that's a benefit. Right. You know, there's less thinking. As far as sugar goes for fueling, uh, definitely an option. And, you know, I just want to put the caveat out there that I'm going to be kind of getting into the more extreme side of the fat fueling. And by that, I mean, if you're fully fat adapted, but there's many benefits just taking out a little bit of sugar. Yeah. So when you have too much sugar, it's going to put your liver into overload. I'm not sure if you're famil familiar with the statistic, uh, but about 31% of Ironman competitors 
notice some sort of GI distress. So yeah. I don't, yeah, with your runners, if, if anybody has talked about that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a pretty common thing. And there's one of my really good friends, we have done races, lots of races together. And and he has twice basically had very serious issues and hasn't finished a couple of Ironmans. It was all GI related. And I'm not a nutritionist, but I, I spent a great deal of time riding and running in the midday heat, logging and tracking how many gels I could eat, how much water I could take in, how many mm-hmm. salt caps I could take in before I would get nauseated and start vomiting. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So then I had a very, very specific plan of exactly how many minutes at how many watts, you know, I needed to take in food, fuel and water. And although that's, you know, certainly better than not knowing exactly, there has to be a better way than really this micromanaging of intake to avoid GI distress. Yeah. And what's great is that when you you figure out your fueling strategy, and I have to just say, you know, you bring up an excellent point of testing nutrition before the race day. So I'm working with an athlete now who I'll talk a little bit about, and there's a recipe on my website for an avocado breakfast. Um, So this simple recipe actually keeps her sustained from swimming masters for, I believe it's about an hour, 20 minutes, and then takes her to the track. And she doesn't feel super hungry after. Um, So she can focus on the workout. So I think a, a side benefit as well is that you can focus on the race. You're not thinking, okay, at at X mile, I'm going to have to take in a certain amount of nutrition. I mean, that's, so people, you know, I've had people ask me, what do you think about when you're on the bike during one of those races? I'm like, well, I basically, all I think about is my wattage and (laughs) I am literally watching the time, my wattage and the time (laughs) and that's it. And I'm basically just, okay, how many more minutes before I have to take in another gel or another salt cap or whatever? Believe it or not, it does keep me busy because it is a lot to manage. Right. For sure. And, you know, just to touch on two other benefits, having enough fat in your diet, having adequate stores allows transportation of the fat soluble vitamins. So this would be like our A, D, E, and K. So these vitamins are very important. I like to also say that there is nobody that's exempt from needing every vitamin and every mineral, including athletes who need more micronutrients. They can intake them, but we want to make sure that they get taken throughout the body. So that's through hydration and also just healthy fats. Right. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, nutrition isn't what you eat. It's what gets absorbed, taken up and used by the cells. Right. But we think it's what you eat. And well, that's not true. You know, it's just, that's part, that's the first step in the whole process. Uh, You know, I was doing a call, you know, remote consultation with someone last night with irritable bowel syndrome. Well, Mm. that's a very different thing. We can both eat the exact same thing. And I would certainly have a different utilization of the nutrients than she would with the exact same intake of food. Uh, So you have to address that, right? Exactly. Um, It's kind of funny because when I was studying, I had this concept and my teachers would say that you're it's not, you aren't what you eat, you are what you absorb. So talking about bioavailability, how much is coming in. You know, I was giving a talk actually to a mom's group a couple years ago, and some of the moms were amazed to learn that they were giving their kids cereal that would say eight grams of protein. Well, you know, absorbability of protein in a refined food is not going to be the same as if you had, say, three ounces of grass-fed meat or salmon. Right. It's totally different. Exactly. So, you know, all these things really can can differ in terms of the amount of nutrients that you absorb and you know and it has something to do with timing as well so what about fat nutrition and timing this is the doc on the run podcast don't go anywhere we'll be right back 
What's a virtual doctor visit? The idea of not running at all while waiting for my foot to heal was simply depressing. I really needed a second opinion from an expert, someone who specializes in helping runners. What you'll get from Dr. Segler, in my experience, is expert runner and medical care that's individualized for your needs. I left with actionable steps to recover from my injury. Dr. Segler is different, and I felt heard, didn't feel patronized, and I felt like he prioritized getting me back to running as soon as possible as much as I did. I just couldn't see sitting around for six weeks knowing my hard-earned fitness would vanish. I know Dr. Segler is an expert, and I wanted to see him in person. But frankly, I just couldn't afford the cost of a house call. I saved enough money to pay for my next marathon registration. You have an appointment with Dr. Segler, whether it's via Skype or on the phone. You can expect, one, he's gonna be on time. Two, he's gonna be able to spend more time with you than the typical uh, visit in a doctor's office. And both of those are gonna result in a more effective diagnosis and treatment plan for you. I'm a young woman in the Philippines and I hurt my ankle yesterday. I just wanted to say thank you and that it's such a relief to be able to find a website like yours and get some information when I'm in a place with uh, little to no medical care. So I just wanted to call and say thank you. You're awesome. Book a virtual doctor visit and get a second opinion online today. Welcome back to the Doc on the Run podcast. What about fat, nutrition, and timing? We yeah. hear about timing all the time and we're just talking about it. Like I would track fluid and fuel intake during my long workouts and you know does this differ some when you shift to fat-based fueling because I think that's part of the question is that as endurance athletes we want to be lighter and faster and so on and you know you are what you right. eat so we think and if you eat more fat then we think well I'll get fat you know I won't be at my race weight but you know, maybe you <laughs> exactly. can explain a little bit about you know nutrition timing and fat-based sure. fueling and how that differs to conventional fueling. Sure, sure. Um, and if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of work in a personal story uh, with a local race that I have that oh, yeah. you know kind of supports the theory. So, um, you know, as you said, you know, with fat, I think people equate dietary fat with body fat with adipose tissue. So, you know, I think there's a common thought that okay, if I in, am, if I'm ingesting fat, I will get fat. And there's several factors to weight gain in itself. But I think that one of the biggest problems with fat is that it's called fat. So one of the podcasters that I listen to, uh, Vinny Todorich, he speaks to, as I said, the only problem with fat is it's called that. But he said, if it were called energy, everybody would want it, right? Yeah, so. Exactly. <laughs> and so um, just to kind of explain the the chemistry behind it. So if you have excess glucose in your system, so I'd like to point out with athletes that this could come from energy bars and, and you'll see such a, a wide variety. I'm sure you've seen also energy drinks that will have, you know, maybe 30 grams of sugar. Mm-hmm. Well, at any one time, we only have a couple teaspoons in our blood and sure we're going to be burning it as we're exercising, but excess sugar actually gets stored as fat. Right. So it's not the fat, but it's actually the excess sugar. So there's a saying that's now circulating, fat doesn't make you fat, sugar does. Now for everybody, you know, they're going to have their own ideal body weight, body composition. And just by increasing these in their system and kind of taking down the sugar, they'll have less stored in the liver and the muscles and just adding fat to their tissue. Mm-hmm. In terms of timing, and I, I was just going to speak to maybe how protein shakes and stuff like that, but just kind of wanted to get into one of my own stories about 
racing. A couple years ago, I I implemented this. As you know, I had a son about a year ago, so <laughs> my it um, changes things, right? <laughs> it certainly does, uh, especially around the sleep areas. But I would say, you know, before he was born, I was really experimenting getting into performance nutrition. I was doing a race called Big Kahuna. Now it's known as the Santa Cruz 70.3. So I'm actually going to sign up and return to that this year. Oh, great. I'm really excited about that. And I can kind of play around with my own performance nutrition. The year that I did Big Kahuna, well, it's over in uh, Santa Cruz area. And I was really kind of really deep into a fat-fueled approach. So, you know, we can talk about ratios to keep for for fat, protein, carbs. But at that time... I was primarily fat fueling, but I did have some sugar. So I want to point out that you can strike a balance between the two. But if you were to go fully fat adaptation, that does require ketogenic diet where, you know, most of your intake will be from fat. Make a long story short, I had breakfast at home, had my coffee along the way, got in the water, had a great swim, got on my bike and realized I made a rookie mistake. I had a new triathlon kit that I was wearing from my team, Team Sheeper, and the pockets were very small. So at the time, I had nutrition, and also at the time, I was thinking, I want that bike PR. So for me personally, I was trying to get my first sub three hour, trying to score a nice half marathon time, and I went to put my nutrition, and it fell out. And, you know, I'm fumbling, you know, what the transition area is like, right? Especially when you're trying, you're going for your PR. (laughs) You just, you want to get right on that bike. (laughs) That is the most stressful spot on the planet. (laughs) For sure. For sure. And, and, uh, with Santa Cruz, you actually have to run up the sand up to the transition area is actually up a, a little bit of a hill incline. So traditionally, if maybe it took you two minutes to get going, get on the bike, this adds a couple minutes to it. It's a little bit tricky. I was stuffing my nutrition just really quickly. I get out on the bike, it falls out my back pocket. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to really try to use this fat field approach during a race now. Um, But I thought that's okay. You know, I can get the aid station, you know, hit that up, maybe 20, 30 miles into it, get some nutrition, put it in my back pocket or take it if I need to. I'm going along route one and you see what you don't want to see on a race course. You see ambulance, fire truck speeding by. Turns out one of the athletes who was later okay, but he basically collided into the only aid station on the course. Oh well. So this aid station was, it's an out and back course. So, you know, you'd potentially hit it twice. Now, they didn't have someone on the other side of the road, I don't think, at that point. But this this race in itself was kind of not run like a traditional Ironman race. So it wasn't as many people on the course as volunteers. The aid station just got completely taken out. So, you know, they were directing cyclists to go around. And I had no nutrition since breakfast, pretty much. And here I was speeding along. I came in, it was either six or eight minutes under my goal time, or I should say, so I made my goal, kind of blasted through it, uh, went on to have a a great run. And that story really stuck with me because I was able to access the fat stores. 
with a huge you know, improvement. And it's not. Yes. With the exactly. first part of that story, most people would hear that and say, okay, you know, you came in six to eight minutes under your goal, then you probably had to walk the half marathon. But that's yeah, not how it worked. Right, right. So I think I had used a little bit of natural sugar along the course. Maybe it was like a banana halfway through, but that was more just to kind of kick it into the high gear. And I do want to to point out the concept that even very fat adapted athletes. Um, so there's a couple of hundred mile racers now on foot race that will fuel primarily with fats, but okay. they also sugar trickle. Okay. All you need is a little bit. It tells your brain, okay, let's put it into high gear. So it allows you to even use a little bit of sugar to gain performance edge. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so your body doesn't get so resistant and it needs more and more right. to kind of function at that level, yeah. which can add to the GI stress. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Yeah. So certainly for anybody doing ultras or Ironmans or potentially even marathons, that can be a really useful strategy, right? Yeah, so we could get into talking about how it can be used and sort of the process. How do people make that shift? Because, you know, so many people think, well, it even says on the gel 15 minutes before and then every 45 minutes throughout your run or your ride or whatever, you're supposed to be eating these gels. We don't know, mm -hmm. of course, that that's right for everybody anyway, but at least there are some instructions on how to get started when you buy those gels. So what about people who are right. trying to fat fuel and maybe do the sugar trickle on top right. of that. Like how do endurance athletes fuel that way as opposed to fueling with gels and sports drink or dates? You know, how do they make this right. shift to fat fueling? If we're talking about an athlete that is going for full fat adaptation, this athlete is going to go beyond storing the 2000 calories of fuel as sugar. And they could get upwards of even the, the leanest athletes that may be four to 5% have access to tens of thousands of calories uh, for fat. So they would need much less fueling on the course. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to speak to the fully fat adapted athlete and kind of take you through that process. Generally, what the athlete would do would be to clear out the sugars. There is a two to three week carb restriction period so that their body can actually learn, okay, I've got this alternative source, let me use it. Athletes will notice a little bit of a dip in performance, some more than others. But, you know, we're, we're thinking about this in the long term, you know, especially applying for endurance athletes. I'm sure you're familiar, you know, with the long training block. This sort of approach, I would say best implemented at the beginning of your training season. Certainly you could do before, but ideally, you know, you want to pair it with the zone two, with the fat burning stage. Your body gets really in sync with burning fat, it will burn fat as fuel, and then it will burn body fat as fuel to kind of keep you going. So that's a slight drawback because some people might not like that. <laughs> you know, it Yeah, but it's only a drawback <laughs> if you're short-sighted. Exactly. So, exactly. And I think that most endurance athletes are used to this concept. I mean, we do base training and right. Mark, Allen, uh, Mark Allen often tells this story about when he was <laughs> doing his races, there was this German guy that he would ride with, and this one particular ride they would do when they would get to the top of the mountain, like in the you know right in the middle of his yes, like, right, yes. you know, he right. would get to the top, and the guy would be circling, and he would say, "Mark, you know, I'm beat you, <laughs> you know, Mark, I'm going to beat you in Hawaii," and he would never beat him in Hawaii. Because Mark was exactly. looking for the long game. Like, you know, fat yeah. fueling, it sounds like you really need to pay attention to the long game here. And if you have a really intense race season, it's probably not the time to make this shift unless you right. can give up some of your performance in the short term. Exactly. So for some of the pro basketball players I was talking about, 
they, some of them only noticed in three to four days that they were able to switch to becoming more fat adapted. You know, genetics plays a role, certainly maybe in that case. But it's funny that you bring up Mark Allen because he actually changed a lot of his fueling techniques to burning less sugar. And when he talks about going back to zone two, uh, similar to your story, I'm not sure if you heard, but he would get passed by ladies in their 60s and 70s when he was on a training run and running uphill at the beginning. And they would say, you can do it, son, you can do it. (laughs) You know, he had to walk for some of that when he was getting up the, the hills and running. So yeah, so that's a consideration definitely to make. When you clear out the sugar, you know, there's a twofold approach. So you could take the complete plunge and go cold turkey or gradual. With my clients, I actually do more of a gradual approach because what I find is commonly in diets, uh, people will have a lot of hidden sources of sugar. Now for myself, I actually like the cold turkey approach and there's been success with both. I think people could either find their groove in either. One of the things too, just kind of to work this in is the can comes up. So if, if people were to completely drop out sugar, they need to be eating something. So UCAN doesn't interrupt the fat burning process even though it's a carbohydrate. The way that they make it, it's a 24 to 48 hour period and it's a super starch. So it acts like a fat, but it is a sugar. Mm -hmm. It can be kind of confusing, but it's basically, it would work with the approach. So if you have an athlete that was like, you know, I can't just like completely cut this out. Well, they could transition and eventually use the UCAN. But Jeff Bollock and Stephen Finney are sort of the pioneers in this fat-fueled approach. And they would recommend to take out that full three weeks and then to add in something like a you can okay you know so their bodies can fuel and like i said tailoring the training to being zone two will really ignite that fat burning approach so when you say this whole cold cold turkey approach it's kind of like the ketogenic diet right you really eliminate that stuff Right, exactly. Um, so this is where it's it's it is useful to work with somebody you know in the field that understands it because there are also considerations that whether you go cold turkey or gradual are important changes to make to diet and especially for cold turkey. So yeah. this is managing your your micronutrient levels specifically. If we can just get into these minerals just for a little while, because I think cramping is is so common (laughs) with athletes, you know, just to talk about potassium, uh, magnesium, uh, sodium levels. To continue with the fat adapted approach, when you restrict carbohydrates and you're fueling from a fat source to store sugar as fuel, the body also needs to store about three to four grams of water and salt. Mm -hmm. You would be losing that. So that's why people, you know, right off the bat will say, hey, I lost five pounds this week. Exactly. Um, (laughs) You you did not lose five pounds of fat the first week. Exactly. Exactly. So even on a, a fat fueled approach and changing diet, you might lose five pounds. And some of that may legitimately be body fat, but as you said, it's not going to be five pounds of body fat. Well, yeah. I mean, I have a friend that he's a very, very fast triathlete and he lost 16 pounds during Ironman Hawaii one year. He wound up in the medical tent too. And that was not fat. You don't lose 16 (laughs) pounds of fat or even one pound of fat in 11 hours. It just doesn't happen. For sure. I think if that were the case, there would be a lot more people. (laughs) Yeah, right. 
<laughs> trying to do it. Yeah. Just to address those micronutrient levels. And again, I think this is the power of working with somebody that understands this, if this approach is something that appeals. So, you know, just in talking about the the sodium levels, traditionally athletes will need to consume about one to two grams of additional protein per uh, sodium per day. Uh-huh. So this can come in the form and, you know, I've experimented with it because I think cost is a factor, Mm -hmm. how to get this in. Quality is a factor. Bone broths are becoming even more popular. Companies are freezing them and mailing them to clients. So I don't know if you've seen sort of an increase in the popularity of people having bone broths or veggie broths. Oh, yeah. No, I see patients all the time when they have stress fractures and they're like, well, what about uh-huh. bone broth? Do you think that's good? You know, so it's definitely yeah. that's not a question I got five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen it in New York City. You can buy bone broth for three to four dollars for a cup of it. Mm-hmm. Bone broth is a great sort of staple and it provides collagen, you know, as you know, which is very important. But to get that amount of sodium from bone broth, I've calculated this among different brands, you'd probably have to have five or six cups. Oh, yeah. So what you could do in high quality bone broth isn't cheap necessarily. So you can make it your own. But if you want to be standing over this, (laughs) watching the stove, you know, to get that high quality 24 hour bone broth and slow simmer it just requires a lot of time. And I I know a lot of us get time crunch. So there are high quality, which you could add sea salt to. An alternative that I've seen work for people is to actually buy vegetable bouillon cubes. Mm -hmm. And you just add these to hot water and they're a very concentrated source. Right. So then that just adds in this little bit that you're missing, right? Exactly. So if you weren't to add this supplement to your diet, you know, I call it supplement, but it, it, you know, it's just the the mineral that's coming over. Mm -hmm. Um, You might experience a layer of fatigue and you might say, Hey, this approach isn't for me. So I want to point out too, that if it's not broke, don't fix it. I think if your fueling strategy is providing, you know, adequate energy, you've got short recovery times, then maybe not change it. But there are definitely benefits to just reducing sugar, reducing inflammation in the body. Right. So, I mean, that's, yeah, that kind of brings us back to the primary focus of the the podcast, right? Is that, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to discern whether or not something is working for you. So the way I think about it is if you're going as fast as you want to go, if you're you're achieving your goals and Mm -hmm. you're not having problems as a result of achieving your goals, then it's probably Mm -hmm. working for you. If you're going fast, but you routinely or consistently or seemingly without cause get injured and you can't really figure out like, why did I get this stress fracture? Why did I get this Achilles tendon issue? Why did I get plantar fasciitis? If you don't understand, then you have possibly just accumulated inflammation that's contributing to that. Now that may be because you're missing these micronutrients. It may be because you're improperly fueling, but you have to do something about that. And one of the big keys with injury is reactive oxygen species. And you know, it's widely accepted by both doctors and runners. I think that free radicals and reactive oxygen species can contribute to tissue damage and in that respect, overtraining injuries. And uh, it's also been known for a long time, if you cook with certain fats and you overheat them, you're more likely to produce free radicals that can be harmful because they stimulate more inflammation in your body. And with that idea in mind, can you just help us understand a little bit about how the fat fueling idea can actually reduce the amount of reactive oxygen species in your system? Yes. 
one of the things too that you just touched on that I do speak about fats to athletes or anyone else that's interested is cooking oil. So I have a great slide that I could provide you to to maybe provide to the listeners. uh, You know, what's good to cook with, what's good to saute or bake in the oven, you know, so that would be useful. So we can uh, put that in the show notes so that they can reference it. Great. As you said, ROS, reactive oxygen species, is tied to inflammation, is tied to aging, injury. And there is evidence that showing if you were to move to a lower carb, reducing sugar, that you'll actually take down that systemic inflammation. So as you know, with inflammation, it actually does serve a purpose at at a small amount. If you have any sort of injury, it's going to direct white blood cells over to heal. The issue is, and we I see this with a lot of endurance athletes, is the chronic, the systemic, you know, they're training, they're having excess sugar, maybe eating more after their mm-hmm. training and justifying it to, like we said, maybe cake batter. When you switch to having fats, whether you're a fully fat-adapted athlete or not, there is actually less cellular damage. There is actually a study done with um, racing sled dogs with this fueling and how they can access their fat stores connected to this and just kind of keep on going. So, you know, as you said before, if everything is falling into place with your current fueling strategy, keep it. I will speak to the benefits for this approach for fueling with fat, getting your body, teaching your body to use them on race course training days, is it's going to help in those three to four hour plus events. I'm currently working with somebody who for a marathon is fine with the goose, but when they hit that Ironman distance, half Ironman distance, that approach doesn't hold true for the whole thing. So getting something that's going to to be less inflammatory to the system is is pretty important. Well, that's not easy to do. And it certainly is an interesting idea, but there's it seems like there would be an enormous amount to learn for somebody to do this, which of course is mm-hmm. the benefit of working with somebody who's already figured it out. Right, so, right. I mean, now there's so much information available to people in training and how to do their progressions and how to taper before a race and all that. Those things are pretty well ironed out, but some of this other stuff like fat feeling is not so clear. And so that's why obviously working with somebody like you, somebody who understands nutrition, understands racing, can be extremely helpful. So what is the best place for runners to find you and learn more about how you could help with their nutrition plan, fat fueling, and racing goals? I just gave a talk to the um, Silicon Valley Tri Club. And and after my nutrition talk, I discussed this approach. I was approached by individuals who come from different diet backgrounds. So perhaps they are with a vegan background, vegetarian. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm actually trained to work with all types of diet, which I think is an important thing to, to point out. That's something that I think, you know, just to kind of put that out there, if you are eating primarily plant-based or perhaps have more meat in your diet, um, we can certainly work that way. And we could work from either sugar-fueled, semi-fat-fueled. So all right. approaches. I'm on all the the social media outlets, uh, Google Plus, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I would say, you know, I update my Facebook page with current articles most often. I think I could just give you the link to that. Also on my webpage, nutritionbyheidi.com, you could subscribe to my quarterly newsletter. 
Um, So you would get any sort of interviews or articles that I've contributed to. You could just email me. I'm at info at nutritionbyheidi.com. Well, we'll put all those references on the show notes so that uh, all the listeners can access those and reach out to you with questions about fat fueling. And really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been extremely helpful having this uh, different approach explained because I think it's one that's not really been widely promoted, but it certainly makes a lot of sense. And anything Mm -hmm. that athletes can do to not only stay fueled and go faster, but stay properly fueled and help avoid overtraining injuries and chronic inflammation can certainly be helpful. So I really appreciate you being here on the show and best of luck to you in your upcoming race in Santa Cruz. I'm sure you're going to kill it. And I suspect (laughs) that in spite of that uphill run in the sand, you're going to uh, get another PR. So be interested to hear how that goes. I'll have to make sure to check my uh, tri top, which one I've got on. and (laughs) Check those pockets. I will fill the pockets. All right. Thanks, Heidi. All right. Thanks, Chris. If you have a question that you would like answered as a future edition of the Doc on the Run podcast, send it to me and then make sure you join me in the next edition of the Doc on the Run podcast. Thanks again for listening.